Voiceover Coffee Shop, episode number 35. Welcome to the Voiceover Coffee Shop, where we share our morning with some of the finest names in voiceover. And now, here's your host, voice actor Andrew Morrison. Hi there, my name is Andrew Morrison, and welcome to the Voiceover Coffee Shop where we start our day with some of the finest names in voiceover. If you'd like to know more about me, please feel free to check out my personal website at www.andrewdmorrison.com. In this episode, we have a very special guest and a legend in the industry who is very, very close to me, my very dear friend, Bill Farmer. You may know Bill as the voice of Disney's Goofy, Pluto, and Horace, as well as Sylvester and Yosemite Sam from Space Jam, or maybe even as the reporter Justin Ballard Watkins from the 1987 RoboCop film. In this episode, we talk about risk-taking in your career, developing a character voice that is truly unique, and building a foundation as a voice actor. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing great. It's nice to join you. It's a pleasure of mine. Good to see you again. So how does your yeah, it's uh, kind of a unique via Zoom, which we're all used to now. And it was so nice being at the One Voice conference because I actually get to talk to people face to face. That was my favorite thing, especially just putting faces to names. There were a lot of people that I hadn't had the opportunity to meet yet. And it was it was a wonderful experience. So many wonderful right. people, um, so much information going around. It was enlightening, to say the least. Yeah, it really was. It was a great weekend. And it was good back to get back to Dallas because that's where I started my career. Oh, really? Um, stand-up comedy. I got my first agent in Dallas. I got married in Dallas. I lived there for about 12 years. And uh, so, yes, that's where it all began. And it was nice to get back there. Gotcha. So how do you take your coffee in the morning? How does your, your day kind of start out? This is it. I got my coffee, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I do until about 11 o'clock. It takes me that long to wake up these days. A uh, little sugar, a little cream, and I'm off and running. Fantastic. So what is your kind of origin story? I know you did comedy and uh, you were in RoboCop before you were doing yes, voiceover. I was. Um, that was back in Dallas as well. Oh. I, uh, my degree was in uh, journalism and I also had a background in electronics. So I was hired as a chief engineer as well as an on-air personality at several radio stations. And ever since I was a kid, I was enamored of show business in a little town in Kansas. There's not much outlet for that. Radio seemed the most logical way to go. And I didn't realize it at the time, it was a great training ground for what I would do later on. It uh, allowed me to be bad. In other words, uh, I, you know, you start somewhere. You've got to learn by your mistakes and make a lot of mistakes along the way. And that was a safe way to do it. I didn't know that at the time, but um, it allowed me to create characters, to kind of to learn to read copy because we would rip right off the teletype, the news, and in news today, you know, and you just do it. And uh, I didn't really think of that as training, but it was. And then in Dallas, I uh, wound up in Dallas after a number of years as an electronic technician, couldn't stay away from show business. So I started stand-up comedy. Uh, just okay. an open mic night at a comedy club in Dallas back in 1982, and um, the routine went pretty well. I started pursuing that a little bit more, and so within 
six, seven months, I was traveling to other towns in Texas and uh, as a stand up and kind of worked my way up through there uh, to headliner status and decided, well, you know, Hollywood's next. Let's try it. I got an apartment in Hollywood. My wife stayed in Dallas because you never know if you're going to make it. Went out there and about five months later, they said, do you do any of the Disney characters? There was an audition to settle on one voice for each of the main characters. Just totally serendipitous luck. And out of about 1,100 people, they worse like my goofy. <laughs> so what was kind of like your comedy style? I had a little bit of difficulty trying to research some of your stand-up work. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a mostly stand-up, uh, observational comedy, you know, wives, kids, life. And also uh, impressions, because I started out doing impressions. When I was a child, I would watch television and I would start doing, you know, Bugs Bunny and Daffy and, oh, brother, ain't I a stinker? You're despicable. That boy's about as sharp as a bowling ball. And I'd run around the house doing these voices. My parents thought I was really strange and uh, that I'd never amount to anything and didn't get any, uh, yeah, you ought to pursue this. I It was like, uh, that's weird. Our kid's weird. And just had to deal with that until I got into college and found out, oh, people like me to do voices. So did you do any studying on Pinto before you went into the booth to audition for Good? Not, not a bit. It came out of nowhere. I knew who he was because I'd always been a fan of animation and kind of knew some of the lesser known names. We mostly all knew Mel Blanc, mm -hmm. who uh, did all the Warner Brothers characters, but we didn't know people like Dawes Butler and, uh, uh, you know, Don, uh, Don I'm trying, trying to remember now, Bill Scott, who did Boo Winkoo, you know, and all of those kind of uh, characters. And Dawes Butler was actually, when I came to Hollywood, who, for those that don't know, did most of the Hanna-Barbera characters, Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, Captain Crunch, you know, about 40-some major characters. And he taught students. And he taught some people at the same time, Nancy Cartwright and uh, Corey Burton, and a bunch of people were in his class. I joined that class, and he was such a wonderful mentor. He was the one that really said, it's not as much about the voice as it is about the acting. It's not voice acting, it's voice acting. And so from that, I would credit him with maybe me being able to get the voice of Goofy because I concentrated more on what makes him tick. What, who is this guy? Who is Goofy? How does he think? That's more important than the voice, which kind of followed. And I just naturally kind of had that, that uh, kind of sound. But without the acting, doesn't work. So how do you tap into those, um, in, I want to say, insecurities of a generally happy-go-lucky character? Well, uh, we never really had to do that until a Goofy movie came along in 1995. Mm -hmm. um, he was kind of, it was surface, and the first couple of years, it is an impression. It's I would just listen to his laugh and just do that over and over, tape it, and <laughs> until I had that. Then I would maybe do a sentence, just one sentence. Hi, Mickey, how are you? You know, until I got his cadence, his tone, his, you know, the way that he would uh, say a word. And just built it from one sentence until I could kind of do it. And... Um, but I didn't understand the character at that time until a couple of years later. And I kind of 
delved more into his psyche. What makes him tick? Is he a, a kind of a morose down person like Eeyore, which you always hear, hello, how are you? You know, kind of that down character. No, he's an eternal optimist. He falls off a mountain and he just laughs and gets himself back up on the horse and keeps going. Um, that's his baseline character. He's happy-go-lucky. He uh, takes things as they come. And then when you get other projects like a goofy movie where he has to be a father, kind of worried about his son, getting in trouble and all of this stuff, then you kind of have to, you, know, you kind of meld yourself and your experiences because I had a five-year-old son at that time. He was about five then. He's 31 now. So that's, that's how long ago it was. But so I just substituted Max for my son, Austin, and um, I could kind of tap into the way I would feel, put it in Goofy's voice, and there you go. Gotcha. So, I mean, you're really, really well known for Goofy and Pluto. What, what are some other characters where you felt like you put more of yourself into the script than the character? Well, recently, probably on the show Amphibia, which is on uh, Disney Channel, I play Hop Pop. Um, that's a little different in the audition process as well as the performance in that Goofy was well known. Goofy's been around since 1932. There was a lot of impersonation on that of what had gone before. Hop Pop, I saw a picture of him. He's this kind of cranky old frog that is kind of the patriarch in the, in the series. He's got kind of a heart of gold and kind of, a, but he likes to wear a gruff exterior. And um, so originally I thought he had a little ascot on, a little vest. So I was kind of thinking maybe a Southern gentleman type of thing. Maybe something like uh, Colonel Sanders kind of thing, you know, down there. Not too far from Foghorn, but that sort of thing. Then I figured he's a little bit uh, smaller, so I kind of pinched the voice and kind of made it more deep south. And we did that for a little bit. And then he, well, he kind of uh, progressed from uh, the deep south into Texas. So I put on more of a Texas accent. And before long, he kind of came to life. And that just kind of felt right. And you got to go on your feelings with these characters. And that's what uh, the directors and producers of Amphibia liked. And I was very fortunate that uh, they did a cartoon first, a, a test cartoon, if you will. Mm -hmm. And every other character got recast because it just didn't work right. And some of the characters, they've looked at over 1,500 people to get the right actor. And I was fortunate that I made the, the cut. And uh, so once I nailed that, I was it all the way through uh, till the present. Awesome. So how can other people kind of um, tap into that character development process of figuring out what the motives are behind the character and how to put yourself into those shoes? You know, it, it can be explained very easily, but it's very difficult. It's like trying to explain right. golf. You know, if you say, okay, what is golf? Okay, you hit this little ball into that hole way over there in three strikes, you know, just in three strokes, do it. Well, it's a lot harder to do than it is to explain. Same thing with acting. Uh, acting is tapping into what you know about life and observe about life. And we all use templates. We all, like a teacher that you might have had in high school, and there was a guy that was my algebra teacher, and uh, he was almost kind of like Richard Nixon in a way, but he was very boring, and he would draw out his scent, and he would put you to sleep. 
So if I came up with a character that, okay, this guy's boring, he's a teacher, kind of like on Ferris Bueller, Bueller, you know, Ben Stein, who had that kind of thing, and uh, maybe uh, drop it down a little bit, you've got the same kind of character, and that might suffice for a, an audition and might be the right voice match. So you use what you bring through life and kind of put it into your work. And so you've got those templates like, um, you know, gripey people, um, you know, uh, happy people, uh, like you might have an aunt. And it doesn't matter uh, what gender they are. If you've got an aunt, and I, I certainly have used uh, done grandmas, like Goofy's grandma. And uh, it was from people that I've met along the way. And I just kind of incorporate their voice and mannerisms and create a new character. Gotcha. So how many auditions do you do on any given week? Oh, my goodness. Um, not as much as I used to, because I don't really try out for video games too much. Those can be thro throat rippers. And I've got plenty yeah. of work. I'm on about four or five series right now for Disney. And that, I, I thank God for that character, because there are no other characters other than the Disney characters that have been around that long and are still on television every day. Goopy's been around since 1932. And I'm on about five series right now with him. So I'm very fortunate. I totally realize the luck involved. If I did a character like uh, when the end of the show of Amphibia, that'll probably be it for uh, Hop Pop, as it was on the 7D and many of the other characters I've done over the years. They kind of come and go, but Goofy and Pluto, and we always forget Pluto, but... Um, I was fortunate by, uh, they asked me if I could bark and whoa, you know, I could bark. So <laughs> I picked up Pluto. I did have to audition for him, but they liked that as well. So two of the top Disney characters I've been able to voice all these many years. Um, and uh, it, it's just been, I, I realized it's a, a lot of luck as well as being ready for that opportunity when it hits. That's probably the most important thing that I think uh, I, I tell students. And also get a good demo. You got to have a good demo to put out there, but that's not the only thing. You can make a great demo, but once you get in the audition, that opens the door. That lets you show what you can do. But if you can't do it, you know, um, there you go. I could cut together a tape of me shooting baskets um, and hit 100%. Now give me a real ball and let's see you do it. Ah, that's a different story. Right. You got to be ready for those opportunities when they happen. So with all of the auditions and all the work, I, I know that work has wasn't necessarily small when you right. first started getting these roles. How were you balancing life and, and kids and, and having a wife and how were you finding yeah. that work-life balance? Yeah, and that's why it's something that most people don't know. Yes, I do still audition, and if I get one out of 100 auditions, I'm doing fine because there are so many people wanting to do this. Mm -hmm. But uh, balancing, the balance is an important part. This is an interesting uh, way of life that it kind of gets in your head. It can kind of take over your life. You worry about that, that uh, next audition, that next job so much that it kind of pushes the rest of your life to the side. You can't let it do that. There's got to be a balance in it. And I learned a long time ago where I would do an audition and just kind of put it out of my head. I had to do that. So uh, friends would always say, well, whatever happened to that Ford commercial I heard that you auditioned for last week? 
I don't even remember what for you, you remember <laughs> right. the ones you get and you just keep plugging away. It's a numbers game. You've just got to realize <clears throat> that it's not you. You're just putting it out there and there's thousands and thousands of other people auditioning for these things. And at the very best, it's uh, maybe a one out of a hundred kind of, uh, you know, business. I just have a fortunate uh, backup, which is goofy <laughs> and everything that pays the bills while I'm doing that. And all, all voice actors need to have some other source of income, especially in the beginning, because uh, uh, it's a tough and it's a very competitive field. And I always tell people, uh, first thing you need, get rich parents. That helps. In the <laughs> <laughs> but some way to support yourself while you're uh, pursuing your passion. So how has the industry kind of um, shifted from when you first started getting into the booth to, to nowadays? And I'm not talking COVID, I'm talking yeah. industry in general. Well, um, you can't just miss COVID because it kind of pushed everybody indoors and spurred on the proliferation and the, the knowledge that you can do this from about anywhere. If you have the right equipment, you can do this from Nebraska and wherever, uh, just as well as you can from Hollywood and, and California, where in the old days, I had to be here because that's where all the talent was and that's where the recording studios were. Not true anymore. People can live wherever they want and get involved with this. The flip side of that, there it opens it up to um, many, many more people that aren't willing to move to California to give it a shot. They might say, well, you know, I'm not doing too much these days and I have an extra free time. I think I'll try and get into voiceover. And that opens up uh, a lot of uh, possibilities and also a lot of problems because um, in Hollywood, most everything, about everything I do is because uh, I'm in the unions, they're union jobs. Now, the nice thing through the years that that has provided me is a pension and health care and that kind of thing. The independent kind of uh, guy out there in Nebraska doing it doesn't have that. He's got to provide it for himself. So there are obviously the, uh, you know, websites, uh, voices, one, two, three, and things like that, where it's kind of, you can put your demo up there and uh, get out there and kind of, it's uh, kind of like the wild west again, where you just kind of, uh, you've got to do your own deal and a lot of other things. Uh, but there are a lot of su successful people that are doing that. So it is changing. It is changing. Um, from the way it was and uh, where it goes, who knows? Um, it'd be nice to have more structure in that some way, kind of as a safety net for people that so that they can get health care and the things that I was able to get through the unions. Um, and, um, you know, well, like you have a booth behind you, you had to build that booth, a little engineering helps too. That's nice to know a little bit about uh, equipment and hardware, as well as the, uh, the uh, skills you have to have as a voice artist. So what do you think the, the new generation of, um, of voiceover artists is, I, I don't want to say missing, but uh, what, what they can do to kind of rise to that cream of the crop? It really boils down to know your craft. You're competing with all of these thousands of other people that want to do this too. Mm -hmm. And like anything, uh, like uh, well, using the golf analogy, um, there are the top players who are just the best at golf. 
Well, how do you get the best at golf? Well, practice, first of all. Practice, practice, practice. Take classes, take seminars, learn from the people that have gone through this. I had to learn kind of the hard way uh, a lot of things that I can impart now to students and save them a lot of time by don't worry about that, worry about this. And probably the most important is worry about the acting more than the voice. Everyone's got a voice. Everyone comes up to me and says, you know, I've got a great voice. People say I should be a voice actor. And that's kind of like saying, I got a great guitar. I should be a guitarist. Well, that your throat is your instrument. Can you play it? Learn to play it. And uh, I'm just kind of the weird guys that I just hear voices in the car on the radio and all, you know, they won the audition. Why not copy that? Play with that. See what they did. What kind of... <clears throat> what is it that we like hearing in their voice and try and copy that and add that to my repertoire. So just keep at it. Just keep slugging away. And uh, there's no easy way to do it. Some people get fortunate and do have a great voice that people want to hear. Other people have to work on those things. Get rid of uh, like if you got some sort of a weird kind of uh, affectation, maybe that's the kind of voice you want to do. But uh, if not, then you have to work on that, that enunciation so you can get rid of an accent so you don't sound like you're from the deep south, but keep that in your back pocket because you might need it. And make everything that's, um, you know, a, just add it to your repertoire, but add, add, add all the time. So Toon House, was that your creation or was that Austin's? No, that's mine. That's mine. I've had that for 20 years. When I, Since I was at radio stations and I did a lot of production work and creating commercials and stuff, I created mostly out of, I didn't have any money to get a good demo. And that was the old reel-to-reel -reel days. I cut it together and, and did it. A few people said, oh, who did your demo? That was really good. And well, I did. Oh, would you do mine? Well, okay. And so I did probably a couple of hundred of them over the years. But doing demos can be and should be a, a time-intensive kind of effort. It should take 20, 30 hours to make a good one after the recording of just editing, finding the right sound effects, the right, you know, oh, this one should go first, that one. Should, and reel-to-reel and -reel days where you had to actually cut the tape and splice it and all of that took quite a while. I got out of that for a number of years, but my son, who is a professional drummer and uh, audio engineer, he went to LA Recording School, Pro Tools certified, all of that. And with nonlinear editing and Pro Tools and all of the software you have now, he's really good at putting demos together and him doing it um, and me directing has just been kind of win-win. We've had uh, great success in putting together demos and over 90% of our students have gotten agents and we're really proud of that. And it's become a fun, nice little sideline business that helps support Austin. And uh, I stick my head in from time to time and do uh, I do the directing and uh, it doesn't take too much time for me anymore. And so we're back and running full, you know, uh, full speed. But Toon House has been my company ever since I, uh, I think I started it in the year 2000. So, but Austin has kind of taken it over and is using that. And so we have this uh, wonderful little uh, group of people that put together demos and teach students and 
now via Zoom and everything, you, you're not limited to be coming out to Hollywood or to wait till someone from Hollywood comes to your town and you can take a seminar. And those are important, the learning experiences. Now, I, I know we don't have time for like a full class, but like, what are some of the, like the key notes of what you do teach when you're teaching new students? Well, I teach things on like how to create a voice, mm -hmm. how to, um, a lot of it is kind of mental preparation because uh, voiceover is tough on you mentally. I mean, just no one likes rejection and it's right. just a part of the business. It is, it is, um, you can be second, you know, let's say there's a hundred people trying out for a spot. And you could be number 100, you could be number two. You're still, you lose out to that number one guy they pick. That's a little tough to take. And uh, there is no second place. It's either you get it or you don't. Right. Um, dealing with those kind of things and just dealing with the, the, the mental part of the business is a large part of it. And then there's, of course, the technical, how to create a voice, how to uh, maintain a voice, uh, how to practice. Um, how to listen back effectively, which is really important to be a good judge of what you're doing without being coloring your, your opinion by your own emotion, just being very objective with what you hear back. Yeah, feedback from others is important, but feedback from yourself, because ultimately you'll be the director of how you say a line and do things. So it's almost teaching you to be a good director as well as a good performer and trying to keep the two separate in your mind if it's possible. Gotcha. So, I mean, you've got a, a crazy schedule. What do you do outside of the booth? What are like like little pleasures that you enjoy? Like what, oh, I love what traveling. do you do? I love traveling. I love, uh, my uh, career has really uh, given me a great deal of uh, flexibility because I'll go on Disney cruise ships to do speeches. And so I get a free vacation. Uh, I love travel. I love golf. I like that, reading, photography, just kind of, I just love a lot of different things, watching movies, uh, you know, um, just everything that whatever hobbies a normal person has, it's kind of <laughs> like that. And, but this, um, this career has allowed me to, uh, to kind of uh, combine my hobbies with my passions. And if you can do that, then you're doing okay because I love I love voiceover. I love the business, and people always say, "Well, you're retirement age now. You should uh, retire." And I, why would I give up the world's best job? It's so competitive, but when it works, and when you're working, and you see your work on television, there's nothing quite like that. So uh, you know, it's it's a career that has given back a lot to me in fun and enjoyment. Gotcha. So if you were to write yourself a letter and send it back in time to when you were doing your stand-up days from right now, what, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to put away that little insecure guy that's in there. When I'm in the booth, one of the things that I teach is that um, you've got to get over those insecurities. You've got to be able to put them on hold. I would say, I got to take Bill and put him on a shelf over here to let Goofy come in. I can't worry about, you know, how I look, how I sound to the people in the booth. I have to be able to entertain myself and make sure that these 
words that I'm saying are genuinely emotional from the character standpoint without being colored and diluted by my own insecurities. And, you know, you see people talking and you have a tendency to think, oh, they hate me. They want to say, they're saying, oh, let's get that next guy that came in. This guy can't do it. And all of these little things creep in. You can't let that happen. You've got to take those. And then you find out later, they're just ordering lunch. Um, there's a lot of unnecessary worry that goes into this. If you can concentrate fully on what you're doing and the emotional life of the character and his situation and not yours, you're in a booth talking into a microphone. What is Goofy doing? He's with Mickey. They're out. They're doing an adventure. I've got to be 100% there. The more that you can put of yourself into that character, the better and the more truthful that performance will be. That's what I've got to uh, worry about. And uh, there are so many years uh, where I was worried more about, um, you know, what people were thinking than what I was doing. I learned that in stand-up comedy where I learned that, you know, there were some brutal nights where things just didn't, weren't funny, didn't work. You can't go there. You just got to entertain yourself. And I've always said that if I can entertain myself, I'll entertain others. So I have to put all that other negative stuff aside and just kind of get it out of my way to let me be this character. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on, Bill. This has been phenomenal. It's great to see you again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Bill talk about his journey and learn how even to this day, he still pushes himself to hone his incredible talents and how even as an iconic voice, he still works every day to better himself. Thank you so much for coming on, Bill. It was an absolute honor and it was wonderful to see you again. If you guys would like to know more about Bill's coaching or his demo production, you can find information for it at www.toonhouse.com. Anyways, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The VoiceOver Coffee Shop. For more information on guests, new episodes, and more, be sure to visit www.vocoffeeshop.com.